Hi, I'm Jamar McNeil. I'm Anne-Marie Medawick. And I'm Candy Palmiter from the Mi'kmaq Nation. We are coming to you today from the unceded territory of the Mississauga of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. And welcome to a new episode of From Where We Stand, conversations on race and mental health in partnership with Bell Let's Talk. 500 years ago, across the sea they came, invaded our land, took away our home. Mother shared a story, cut her hair and braid, punished child for speaking Cree. Why were they so mean? Tell me how. Tell me now. That was Rhonda Head, Cree singer, songwriter, and composer. Rhonda wrote the song 500 Years with her late mother, who was a residential school survivor. We're going to hear more about Rhonda's mom and the intergenerational impact residential schools have had through her sister, Janet Head, who'll join us on the show in just a little bit. So this is a very, very uh, important episode. Of of course, all of them are. But this one, very relevant to um, the time that we're in, where we are now being told the complete truth about what's happened in the residential schools in Canada. And now the entire community or the entire country is having a conversation on a couple different levels because we're talking about what happened to the, the survivors of those residential schools and the impact intergenerationally to the families of the survivors of the residential schools. Yeah, I in interviewing um, a good friend of mine, her name's Holly Fortier, and she uh, did a documentary with her mom, who was a residential school survivor. So she's from Fort Mackay First Nation. They came up the river by dog sled when it was frozen. They took her mother, who at the time was six, her great auntie, and another child, and they were raised in residential school. And it was that documentary that first connected the dots for me. I think we see in headlines different issues that will come up. So we'll see missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We see the issues around residential schools. We'll see high suicide rates. But it was that storytelling of a survivor that made me connect all those dots, that as a young girl who was taken by six, who didn't get out of that school until she was 18, and then they were dropped off in downtown Edmonton with no real education, uh, no opportunities for employment, no financial backing, and no family support. And from that, a lot of women either went into trafficking, and, and it, there was years before she actually made it back to Fort Mackay. Uh, and at that time, she had no family left. Um she had to start a family of her own and then try to raise children. And in that time, you you start to connect the dots between suicide and self-medicating and missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And you see that when we talk about the legacy of residential schools, we're not just talking about um we're not just talking about the kids who are at that school, the kids who survived that school. We're talking about the kids who came after and their grandchildren and their great grandchildren. I've been finding it interesting because for us, we've always known that those children have been there. But for so many years, we hear people tell us, oh, you should be thankful for the education you got there, like as if those schools had anything to do with education. But now, with the bodies being unearthed, it becomes much more difficult for people to say, you should be thankful for that education. So finally, it's kind of forcing the rest of the country to have a bit of a reckoning. Candy, as a member of the Indigenous community, can you tell me, I, I can imagine it is particularly triggering when people say things like, that was in the past, that happened so long ago, and they don't make the connections to 
why what happened in the past affects people in the present. And I think that's what we're going to hear today. Yeah, it, it's frustrating on a couple of levels because, first of all, it's not in the past. Uh, in terms of being taken from our families, uh, we are represented in the foster system and the care system at a much higher rate than non-Indigenous Canadians, so we're still being taken from our families all the time. More kids right now, Indigenous kids are in foster care than we're ever in the residential school system. Also, in remote communities, if you want to be educated, you still have to leave your community to go into a white city to go to school. And I mean, Tanya Talega wrote an incredible book called Seven Fallen Feathers about the fact that a lot of those kids are still not coming home. You know, there was a whole rash of deaths in Sun Thunder Bay where kids went into that city to go to school and then they fished them out of the river dead. So, um, yeah, when, and whenever people talk to me about the past, I just think, oh, my goodness, people, you know, educate yourself before you open your mouth and wreck yeah, yourself. Yeah. It's important to note, however, that podcasts are not a form of medical treatment and should not be seen as a substitute for therapy or medication. So if you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, please consult with a mental health provider. Coming up on the show, we're joined by Roberta Hill, who shares her story at one of Canada's oldest residential schools, the Mohawk Institute. But first, we'll hear from Edmund Meditawaban, a former First Nations chief, an author, and a fearless advocate for the survivors of St. Anne's Residential School. Edmund Metatawaban was only six years old when he was forcefully removed from his home and he was sent to one of Canada's most notorious residential schools, St. Anne's. He stayed there for eight years. Eventually, he went on to recount his traumatic years in a book and has been a tireless advocate for survivors, ensuring that their stories don't go unheard. Edmund Maratawaban, thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. Good to hear from you. Do you actually remember the day that you were taken? And can you talk a little bit about how you process that at six years old? It's uh, one of the things that uh, stays in your memory because... Uh the uh, things that were going on inside the house, my dad and my mom, and there was something going on as if was somebody was going to die, the way they were uh, talking and whispering and mother crying and trying to, he's trying to console her, it's okay, it's okay, you know, things like that. So I was expecting something to happen and... One night, is about after supper, they said, okay, uh, here's your jacket. And my dad walked me across. It's not the usual kind of walk with the father and son. It was very, very quiet and silent. And it took us about 10 to 12 minutes to make that walk across the dry channel, maybe longer. But uh, we came come up the hill and we see the big building. And this is the only shelter in the whole area that has bright lights. And then we walked in and uh, did the introductions. And then I was told to, um, you know, you go to the washroom, I have to talk to your dad, kind of thing. And um, so I went to the washroom and I heard the front door where we had walked in. I heard the door close, and I said, well, what's he going? Where is he going? I look out the window, and there he is walking down the steps, and he's 
the saddest thing I've ever seen because his head is down. And you can imagine um, a young father who just left a six-year-old boy. So any one of you listening can just imagine uh, your own child who was only six and you're leaving your child for the whole year to be looked after by uh, by these uh, people. And you know the conditions of the place you're leaving your child because you yourself went in there as a young boy. And because uh, these things opened in 1903. My dad was born in 1917. So as a six-year-old boy, the um, practices, the instructions, the um, atmosphere, um, the character of these people uh, was quite, they'd never changed. There was the same character uh, that he experienced uh, meeting for the first time and me also meeting for the first time. Because uh, as soon as my dad uh, is now uh, out, of the, um, out of my sight, I hear a big scream outside the washroom door. And I said, come on, get out of there, you little savage. And um, so he opened the door, grabbed my, shoulder, grabbed my shoulder, my, my, um, my shirt. And I got slapped for the first time in my life ever. Hard enough so that I could, I hit the opposite wall. I got slammed against the wall. And so I was in there. So that was my first uh, visit to that institution. What a picture you paint. I can see that building like as if I'm there with you. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it was an ominous building, uh, solid concrete all over the place and polished, polished. And you know, people who polish their floors are trying to erase something or get the stain out. These schools really weren't about education at all. It wasn't about um, educating people. Can you just talk a little bit about what your experience was there? Like what day-to-day -day life at the school was about? We all got up at uh, five o'clock in the morning <clears throat> for uh, the six o'clock uh, mass. And that lasted for the whole hour. Seven o'clock is uh, breakfast, uh, the usual porridge, and nothing, not much else. And uh, eight o'clock, we go outside to have some fresh air. And nine o'clock is back into class until lunch. And uh, come home for, come, come to the dining room for lunch and back into the classroom. And then four to six in the afternoon, it's uh, four to five, it's uh, plate time again. And then five o'clock is supper, and then six o'clock back to the chapel for one hour. Seven o'clock in the playroom until eight, and eight o'clock is uh, heading up to the dormitory and lights out by uh, after 8.30. So that was the usual schedule. And what kind of events, like what kind of things did you know were happening to some of the children there? Oh, everybody knew about the, um, because you can't really hide anything. There's uh, rows of beds, seven down, and rows of, I think, about 12, because we were about 80 to 90 in that one dorm. 
And across on the other side, there was another one and a smaller one. So it was, uh, it was enough people, enough uh, eyes to, to know what was going on. And uh, you were just uh, hoping that you would not get a, a tap on the shoulder to, to be taken somewhere else. What did the tap on the shoulder mean? It's either the mother superior would come and take you to her bed for the oral exercise, and uh, the uh, the bishop would um, pick up one of the girls for private instructions, and um, the uh, the two nuns uh, with the white uh, habits, they work they work at the infirmary. They were the ones that picked up the girl and take her to the bishop. And uh, so that was the usual stuff. The uh, brother Bodoway is the maintenance uh, brother. He used to pick up uh, his own girl and take her to the basement and uh, on a regular basis. And a sister, Goretti, uh, had her own uh, two boys at a time that uh, she used to take out. So those sort of for us normal things that were going on. And this is what the uh, the testimonies we provided much later uh, contained. And Father Lavoie, his, his name comes in there too, Bishop Bello and Bishop Laguerrier. All these uh, missionaries uh, who, who were the holy people had other things to do uh, when the sun went down. We knew these things were normal and we observed them and we didn't we didn't really um, hope that you know that we would be part of that we were we were terrified of that other than that it was a misbehavior a strap uh, about uh, four inches long but half an inch thick and maybe three inches wide those would be a with um, with the, at the end of that rubber, you'd see um, a string uh, from uh, that rubber end. And at the end of that, those strings are um, pieces of metal, um, like uh, hard metal. Uh, and these would be applied to your back. So many of us have these scars on our backs uh, still from that strapping. And... We saw that strapping being applied to kids. And uh, what happens uh, from their stories, I was fortunate not to have one. Uh, from their stories, you only feel the first one. After that, the, the body or your brain shuts down and you, you, your memory takes over so that when you hear the noise hitting your back, you know that's pain, so the, you're, uh, you're screaming, but it doesn't help. So it's, it's a long, you know, 20 lashes, and it's usually the uh, person applying the straps, oh, is it 20 now? And, you know, hit, hitting three more. So it was, um, they, enjoyed, they enjoyed applying that thing. Another one is the electric chair. In this case, we were only six or seven years old. We're sitting on a chair and holding on to the armrest 
uh, made of metal, and the uh, it's applied to the electricity, and they turn on the electricity. And when you uh, when the current passes through your uh, your body, your fingers tighten up; they can't let go, and that's just how it works. And uh, in the meantime, your legs are just uh, pumping up, you know, flying in front of you, but uh, you can't let go until the current stops and then you can get up again. So this was done for entertainment. If the school superintendent was in town, Indian Affairs people were in town, the police, uh, Ministry of Lands and Forest, anybody that was in the... Um, in the official capacity, um, Hudson Bay Company personnel, that was a good uh, reason to show them uh, entertainment by making us line up and we'd sit on that chair one by one. And as each uh, child is uh, squirming around, they, uh, there's, you could just hear laughter from, uh, from the guests. They were seeing the uh, the entertainment the uh, other one the worst one for for me is when you're sick uh, there's not much else to go because you're in the dining room you're sitting at the dining room and between many people you're squished together and uh, so when you're sick you can't really get up because you're not supposed to get up and the washroom is uh, way down the hall. And uh, this is a room, enclosed room. There's only one door. And then there's another big room over there. So when you're sick, you just have no choice. Uh, you get sick in front of you. And usually that's where your bowl of porridge is sitting. And that's what happened to me. Uh, I got sick. Uh, couldn't control it. And then I was sent to bed for uh, three three days. And on the fourth day, I was really feeling really, really good after suffering for three days of uh, the flu or something. And then you get down to the dining room and I'm uh, really hungry. And then you don't get a plate in front of you. you know, did they forget me to give me my plate? You're looking around. And then you hear the click, click of the sister steps on the on the floor and then she puts their bowl in front of you and says here finish that and you you see your bowl from uh, the uh, now it's four days ago and you really have no choice because your friends are not going to help you your mom and dad are far away and grand grandparents are far away police are not going to help you the uh, Ministry of Natural Resources are not going to help you. Hudson Bay personnel are, are not going to help you. So there's no, um, you feel isolated, helpless, and you have to do what you have to do to, um, to survive that moment. And what happens in this case is when you finish your, your bowl, your mind will erase. You will forget for the longest time, I don't know how long, maybe in this case, be four months, five months, that uh, I started uh, observing people around me again. But your mind just sort of shuts down. So those were some of the things that, that happened 
um, on a daily basis. A slap for any reason. You're standing the wrong way. You get a slap in the face over the years. And I mean, in both of your ears. And uh, it affects uh, hearing for many people that when you're, that when you get hit by a big person, they slap you from behind uh, on the cheek and it's, uh, it hurts. And some people have uh, ear problems and or swollen ears. They still have their swollen ears from, uh, from being hit uh, by objects. So there's many scars that we have, physical scars that we still carry. You know, it, it's hard for me to get my head around exactly the physical impact of what you've just described. But then I have to keep reminding myself how young you were and how isolated you were. And then I think about what the mental scars must be from that. Like, how was your mental health during that time? And how did, can you talk a little bit about like how you tried to heal from that? Or you don't heal from that. You're turned into a little robot because now you're being trained to get rid of all your emotions, your experiences, your language, your ways of being rambunctious, being a child, being all these things, and being noisy, talking, jumping, all these things are erased from your system. And when you're looking after 100 kids, you're looking after 100 uh, robots because you don't want them misbehaving. Walk in a straight line, two by two, and sit uh, still and don't move and be silent. So we had little signals. Um, a clap of the hands uh, made us uh, know that we could now talk for a while until we hear the next uh, three claps and then everything is silent again. So uh, one hour that we could talk in a day, which is being outside after uh, after breakfast and then in the playroom at seven o'clock in the evening for one hour we could talk. But most of the time, the, the other hours, it's uh, it's all silence, including the classroom. So we had difficulty in conversation, the habit of talking and saying things back and forth just to have a conversation. We didn't have that uh, practice. So we were pretty uh, what we were trained to be, which is to be quiet, not to say anything and not to initiate any kind of noise. So those things are still with us. And I'm seven to four now, and it's hard to get rid of those habits that were done during your formative years. That's really, um, that's really profound, Edmund. I, you know, I don't hear anybody talk about that very often, but the idea that the simple act of conversation was taken mm -hmm. from you, which makes then everything you try to do in adult life, from job interviews right on, um, almost an impossible task. And, and you talked about some of this stuff in a, in a book that you wrote with um, author Alexandra Shimo called mm -hmm. Up Ghost River, A Chief's Journey Through the Turbulent Waters of Native History. And you said that so much of this stuff came back to haunt you 
as an adult, when you were trying to deal with depression and alcoholism, can you talk about that time in your life? Well, coming out of residential school, you don't know how to speak. You don't know how to play. You don't know how to do the usual stuff that teenagers are doing. So uh, they take you 300 miles away from that school, uh, Fort Albany, to take you to an urban center. And I went to Kirk and Lake. And uh, again, you, you now you see a teenagers the way they're supposed to be. But you're flabbergasted, you're shocked by what they're doing. They're running, they're hitting each other, they're laughing and they're pushing and they're doing all these things you're not supposed to do. And there you are standing in the hallway and you're trying to be, um, be behaving in the way you're, you've learned to behave. So you become an object of, um, you know, out of the ordinary of ridicule and um, you're getting teased. And again, you turn into a robot. Yeah, that's the only safe place you you can be. You're now even more shying away from this definition of being Indian because everything is around you is negative. Your connotation of being a savage and brainless uh, person that does all these things by uh, in a reactional way. So I um, was supposed to do a paper on something. I had no idea what to do. Walked around the library, and I was going to find a little book first and uh, walk around the, the shelves. On the bottom of the shelf, I see this book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's like it's calling me. Man, well, this is what I was trying to do, Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, so I picked it up, a uh, book written by Viktor Frankl. It wasn't a big book, but I uh, thought, well, I, could, I can handle this. So I read it. And that changed my life. It changed the way I was feeling, that I thought about things, became aware, woke me up. And uh, all of a sudden I knew, my God, this was no accident. All the things that were happening to us by design, to talk about putting Indians away in reservations, and forming the Indian Act, all these things that I was reading, it was, it was a lot to register for a teenager, you know, just entering adulthood. So when I hear the residential school is, is uh, long gone, it's far away, you're just saying that form of total institution is gone. It was closed for us in 1973. But the word total institution is still with us. So the reserve system is here. The Indian Act is here. The prime minister can ignore us whenever he wants to. And it, it's today. So it's, this is not yesterday's uh, experience. This is today that we're talking about. And I don't really understand why you want to hear all this stuff that happened to us. What are you going to do with it? And you're going to walk away and talk about it. You're going to go to the bar and talk about it. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but by asking me to talk about these things, I don't know what uh, the end result will be on your part. But me, I am trying to get out of it. I'm trying to resolve it. I'm trying to sort of 
find a sense of balance, a, a sense of being, uh, a sense of uh, being a personality, a person that, that does things. And for me, there is a difference between uh, fighting for justice and having a family. It seems to be so far apart. Um, fighting for justice, I have to go to Ottawa, I have to go to Toronto, I have to go to Thunder Bay, I have to leave my home to have justice at the expense of my family. And um, I don't want to do that anymore. I'd just rather just stay home and fix my house, fix my, my lawn and cut the grass and get the brush from taking over, fix that leak at the, on the roof. Those are my sense of being who I am, which, which was neglected for a long time. When I hear you talk, first of all, I, I love that book as well, Man's Search for Meaning. But when you talked about being in that library and finding that book, it was making me think about my father who has passed on now. And my dad couldn't read or write. And he did find sobriety. My, my father took his first drink with his own mother when he was about 10 and um, battled alcoholism for years, but did find sobriety. He died 51 years sober. And although he got sober, I felt that my dad never healed from his mental wounds. He never, he never recovered from all those things you talked about, about the way people saw him. Um, about even sometimes when I would be studying, he would cry because he just couldn't believe that a daughter of his could read and, and could go to school. Um, and I felt powerful when I learned those histories, when I realized that all these smart people had wrote all these laws to try to end us, and yet I was still here. And I thought, wow, we must be, we must be really powerful if we could get through all that. And you, you know, in, in this healing that you went through, you organized this, this conference for survivors, and that led to convictions of people which I just think, wow, I wonder if like my dad could have ever seen any of his tormentors called to answer. Would that have affected his life? Um, how was that for you to, to be able to have that experience? And, and, and I ask you in, in hopes that any other survivors out there listening um, can, can get something out of the fact that you were able to do that. I think it's... Uh... The physical world is one thing, and uh, we tend to get caught up in the physical world. But I think there's a little bit, uh, there's something else a, a bit stronger, or rather a lot stronger, that is the spiritual component. So it's not me to say anything about the wrongs committed by people. What is... Um, um, Dante say about about this there's a special place in hell reserved for those who, who maintain their neutrality in times of moral crisis and that's today so I worry about the next part of uh, people's lives but I worry about the next step
And I worry about the young people, the 10-year-old boys and girls. Look at your own children. Those are the ones listening that are crawling on, under the dining room table, on the in the living room, just um, looking as if they're not paying attention. But their hearing is very, very good. They hear everything you say. I worry about the, your children um, that are in the urban areas that are being trained uh, by people talking in their dining room table that Indians should be confined in reserves, that black people should be, you know, all these things that are set on the dining room table about any kind of people that not are that are not part of the acceptable way of being. They have a deficiency in character. So those are identified, those, those people are belittled. But your children are different now. They have an internet. They can see stuff. They can see injustice. They observe the wars, they observe the bomb, and they wonder, they wonder if that's the way to do things. If it's okay to be killing people in big, big quantity, many, many people, uh, you know, Agent Orange and all these things that are done. After you leave the dining room table, you say things differently at your meeting, at your House of Commons, and, uh, in places that you make policies and law. So that's that's what I think about as I worry about the 10-year-olds now. Well, I know how hard it is for you to recount all of this stuff. And I just want to thank you so much for opening up your life to us and for giving us this time this morning. Edmund Matarwaban, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. You know, so much of that made me think about my own dad. Um, even even the way Edmund communicates um, reminded me so much of my own father. And just this um, this idea of these scars that it leaves, and I love how he talked about like how you see indigenous people de depending on what your how he used it training was. Um, and my father died with that internalized in many ways. You know, my mom was white, and anytime I would um, have an accomplishment, he would say to me. Oh, I chose the right wife, you know, that's because of your mom. And I, I am the exact replica of my father. Like I am, I have my father's personality exactly. And he just could never see that, like that so many of the good things that I, that I did came from him because it had been beat into him just so consistently that he was nothing less than nothing. And despite everything he had achieved, the fact that he got sober, that he that he raised a, a loving family with no experience of that himself, he didn't have a father. Um, the fact that he ran a business successfully where he when he couldn't read or write, he couldn't see any of that. He just couldn't see it. So it was really beautiful for Edmund to share that story. And and I think the thing that really stood out for me. You know, I've interviewed a lot of survivors and I've heard a lot of stories, but I never, ever before, I've heard of people talk about losing their own language, but I never before heard somebody 
articulate the idea. They took from us the ability to have a conversation that we did not have the ability to interact with other human beings. How can you have a human experience if you can't communicate with the humans around you? Like that makes you less than an animal. Animal Animals communicate. So the fact that he was able to like draw down on that, and I really hope the listeners and Canadians in general can, can reflect for a moment on just how far behind the eight ball you are when that is taken from you. Like how, you know, all this stuff about pull up your own bootstraps or blah, blah, blah. Like just have a can-do spirit and a plucky good attitude. Well, no, that is not, that is not possible when those very fundamental human things are taken from you and taken from you so damn young. And the fact that his dad also had gone through that and yet his father had to walk and his father had to bring him. His father knew what he was bringing him to, but if he hadn't brought him, he and his mother would have ended up in jail. That's, that's how they did it. That's how they played us. So um, I just, you know, I can't say how thankful I am for the fact that he shared that story with us. And I was glad that he sort of checked us too, in terms of why do you want to know? Why, why are you asking? And, and why, why do you want me to go through this for you? And I hope that all of us, as we listen to that, we'll ask ourselves that now, why? What are we going to do with it? He has given it to us. What are we going to do with it? So with that said, if we're asking, what are we going to do with this stuff? Uh, I'll tell you what's going on with me right now as we record this episode. I'm literally sitting here listening to this, this man's story. And I see a $20 bill sitting on my, on my table. It just happened to be there. And I see the Queen of England staring at me on this $20 bill the symbol of Canadian money staring me in the face and I can't unsee it. I just don't, I, I mean, who are the people who's responsible for this? That's my question. I humbly ask who's responsible. And if we're going to attempt to even have a discussion about what are we going to do with this person's story rather than have some kind of voyeurism of, of horror and, and, and tragedy as we sit around and listen to it, like where, how far does this go up, up the chain of responsibility. And I'm looking at the money and I'm just, I mean, I, I just asked my friends here a question, like what does the, the ever present crown have to do with this on a very tangible, real level? And like, where's the responsibility live? That is my question. Cause this is, this is a person who's alive to tell the story. This is not like, like some historical thing that we're reading about way, way, way in a land long time ago. Like this is, this is someone who's alive and experienced this and at the hands of people who are still in, I, in some sort of power now. Who's responsible? That's what I want to know. Listening to Edmund's story and listening to every chapter of Edmund's story, starting from when he was young and describing how his dad walked away, the fact that Edmund is the age that he is now and he can so clearly describe his first day and night um, you know, there's a there's a book called The Body Remembers. It's a it's a book for counseling, but it, it talks about how about different triggers and about how your body will react to to trauma. And when he talks about even now hearing the clicking of the nun's shoes and all of those things that stay with him. And like you, Jamar, I'm I'm sitting with the challenge of he said, I'm gonna tell my story and what are you gonna do with it? And you know, when he said, I've been to Ottawa and I've told this story and I've shared this story, and now I just wanna stay home. And when someone takes the work of being so vulnerable and digging into things that 
are so horrific to share them, not just so that we have understanding of what happened, but then what is the, you're right, what's, what is the action? Who is responsible? And what are we doing now to make sure that we're not perpetrating the same indignities and injustices to Indigenous people in this country? And once you know, what do you do with it? What do you do? And, and for the people in power who know, because, because when we talk about people in power in this country, we're talking about government. Government's known. It's been told. It's been shared. It's been recorded. In the case of the, um, some of the survivors from St. Anne's, I mean, they went to court. The names of these people are known, right? They've, this is not Edmund's first time having to recount this. And how many stories do we have to hear? How many now there's now, you know, in some cases there's going to be evidence, right? Not only do we have living witnesses, as you point out, to hear Edmund, but there's also there's remains being found at residential schools across the country. And um, you know, we've heard different people talk about that that's not a past thing. Now we're talking, we're taking a look at foster care. We take a look at at continually what's being done to the community and in the community. And how many times do they have to say it before something changes? Like you, Jamar, I don't know, like I, you know, I, I sit and I think, what do I, what do I do? Do you write your politicians? What will that do? Do I, you know, you and I both have public platform and we talk about it and we, you know, I'm fortunate enough to get access to and ask questions, can ask questions of the prime minister, but what, do, and have asked those questions of the prime minister, but, but what do we do? Like what, what else is there for us to do? A former residential school survivor, Roberta Hill spent four years at Brantford's Mohawk Institute. It was a prototype for the other residential schools that eventually opened across the country. Roberta, it's an honor to have you share your story with us today. Welcome to the show. Hello. So Roberta, when you talk about your early days, you remember them as happy. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? We were living at home like we were born here on Six Nations. And we lived in a small little house with uh, two adults, seven children, but it was just one big room. But we were happy. Those were happy times for us, really happy times, because kids were free to be kids at that time. And, in, and if anybody remembers uh, Six Nations, the reserve at that time, there was very few cars. You know, it was, it was like I said, I was born in 1950. So you're talking about no cars. We didn't have heat. I mean, we had heat. We had a wood stove, no hydro, no running water. So we lived very, a very simple life. That's all. But there was nothing wrong with that because we all lived that way, you know? So, and then when my dad died, it left my mom with seven kids that were still at home. Um, and so it was a really difficult years for her then you know, to, you have to be able to feed these seven kids, you know, welfare wasn't, it might've been some assistance there, but I don't think there would have been much, but we were used to raising, like having a garden. My, when my dad was there, they would raise like uh, cows, chickens, pigs, that kind of stuff. So he always had something he hunted, he fished. So we always were provided for, and it was really a, a, a very loving home where your parents loved you. They took care of you. So it's totally different when you get to the mushel because there is no there are no caring people there that I could ever remember that really genuinely cared for us. And how old were you when you went to the mush hole? I went to the Mohawk Institute, the mush hole, which we called it. After my dad died in 54, my mom got sick in 1957. And so she was put, she had a breakdown. She just couldn't cope with things and, you know, underlying whatever, there was an underlying mental illness. She just couldn't cope with it. They put her in a St. Thomas psychiatric facility. 
And in 57, I had just turned six in October of 56, but by February of 57, the six of us were sent to the mush hole and the little one, the three-year-old, um, she was sent to the hospital here. We had a hospital in the Schwiegen, Lady Willingdon Hospital. So she had some kind of a cold or respiratory problem. So the baby, we call her the baby. She was sent there, and then the rest of us went to the mush hole. I'm the baby in my family, too. <laughs> Even though I'm 52, <laughs> they still call me that. That's right. And she was the baby, though. I loved my little sister. I loved her. I know how... Um... I'm asking a lot to ask this because I know it, it can be traumatizing to just revisit this, but do you feel comfortable recounting those first couple of days and nights at the mush hole? I think the whole thing is scary because you really don't know what to expect. And, and we were used to living in a family unit where we all shared a bed because we were so, you know, we just didn't have all the luxuries that most people had. Um, so when you go to the mush hole, you're taken up to the first, the first dorm, the lower dorm, and that's where the younger kids were. And so if you get out of line, you get the strap, you know, we didn't know that we couldn't jump in bed with, I, with my sister, you know, it just wasn't allowed. You had to stay in your own bed, shut your mouth, be quiet and go to sleep. So yeah, those those were kind of new things to us and that we weren't used to being strapped that way for something as simple as it, it was normal for us to do at home, you know. And once you were there, did your did your mom ever come to visit? Yeah, she did a couple of times. They brought her from St. Thomas and um that was that was the that was probably the more traumatizing thing for me as a little girl because I was very attached to my parents, you know, like all kids are. They love their parents. And so after my dad died, it left us, but they brought her there a couple of times. And the first time you're just so happy to see your mom, you know, but all I did was sit on her lap and I cried and I cried and I cried. And like I tell people, it wasn't because I was afraid of my mother. It was, a, I was afraid of letting her go. I had to, I knew I had to let her go. She, I couldn't keep her. And, you know, that's, all, that's all I think most kids want it there is they just want it their parents. They wanted someone who loved them, genuinely loved them. And we didn't get that. So that was one time. You were saying that the adults there were scary. When your mother came, did they act the same way with your mother that they did with you? Well, the supervisors, we all had supervisors, the female supervisors for the girls and then male for the boys, but they always carried a strap. They had the authority to strap us at will, whatever they thought we were doing wrong. But they never came in. I don't ever recall the supervisor coming into the visiting room. Because when you enter the mush hole, mush hole through the front doors, there's a room on the on the right when you go in. That was the visiting area. Across the hall was Zimmerman's office, the minister and the administrator, the guy we call Skin. Um, so he always listened. He always he needed. He, I guess he always wanted to know who was on the premises, and so he always listened to what the kids said. And and I can see why he did because there was a lot to say against this guy. But that's just the way it was. Um, I, I don't. The second time that my mom was there, though, that was the more traumatizing part. Tell me about that. Well, it was because when I was playing, we were all playing in the basement. Me and my little friends were playing in the basement. And then um, one of my little friends come running up and told me my mom was there. And she said, if you don't, you know, I, I, and I started crying only because I think they, the kids thought I didn't like my mother because I ran out of the basement and I was going to run upstairs to the, the next level where the main, you know, where the main visiting area was. And so I just kind of froze in that spot and I couldn't go up the stairs. And my little friend said, don't you love your mother? You know, it's, it, 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 that wasn't it at all. I, and, and nobody understood what it's like. Nobody does, unless you're that child separated from a parent. 
what a parent's love means to you. And so I was scared, not because of my mother. I was never scared of my mother. I was scared of having to let her go again. And see, and that's what people don't understand. They don't understand what you've done to a lot of, like this country has done to a lot of, a lot of indigenous children or any child, any child that's taken away from parents. You're left with this, with this huge hole in your heart. Where's, where's your mother? How can, you know, th- there's that person that loved you so much, but you can't, she can't be with you. So that visit turned out to be just as bad as the other one. Not bad, but it was, it wasn't as good as maybe as it could have been because I, all I did was cry. You know, but at least I got to sit. On, I got to sit on her lap. You know, she got to hug me. I got that much from her, and it wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault at all. Yeah, I know. My father used to talk a lot about the impact of being separated um, from his parents, and um, it made him paranoid in terms of how he was going to father. So when you when you came out and came back to Six Nations and you decided you're going to mother, did that have an impact on you? Oh, absolutely it does. Because for one thing, one of the pieces that you carry, one of the part that you carry from the mush hole is that you become very much like their, they do, like they parent. And that is kind of overbearing the authoritarian. You parent that way. But there's another side to that is where you're so fearful. Me, I grew up just being fearful that somebody was going to take my kids. And so you're always watching out. You're always on that, you're hypervigilant kind of thing, you know, towards your children. And that, that's the way I was. And what's your relationship like with your kids now? <laughs> my, my kids are fine. <laughs> um, it wasn't always that way, I don't think, because they'll even tell me that, you know, you did this and you did that, you know, and I, and I have to accept, I have to accept for, you know, my parenting skills for what it was. And that's how I was raised, you know, in the much hole and, and into foster care. So yeah, I always had dominance over me. So maybe I was a little too dominating for them, probably. But it gets thrown back at you. But they still, they're wonderful kids. You know, my adult, they're, um, I have uh, three children, two daughters, a son, and I have six grandchildren, you know, so um, we're doing okay. And, and, and we kind of, you know, as the more you talk about residential school with them, the more they understand. And so, and the more I understand about them, what they went through, because I never looked at it through that lens where what, what I'm bringing with me from the mush hole, what am I, what am I passing on to them? You don't, you don't see that until years and years later, what you've done. Right. Through no fault of your own, by the way. No, well, I was just, that's just what the way we grew up, unfortunately, you know. And you decided to get therapy at some point. How did that help? And, and when did you make that decision? Well, I, I, because I never said anything about the mush hole, I probably was in my 50s, maybe. And going through the lawsuit and sitting on the, the steering committee, you know, with the lawsuit, and at one point I was listening to everybody and, you know, and, and it brings all that sadness. It brings a lot of memories back. And when you do that, it, it tends to heat things up inside of you, things that you've suppressed for years and years and years. And you never want to talk about it. You never want to face those things, you know, because they're not nice. So it became that challenge there. And, and I talked to the lawyer and whatnot. And, you know, and I told him what happened to me. And he said, I don't believe you. <laughs> you know, your own lawyer. I don't believe you. Okay. So he says, you need to go see somebody or whatever. So I did. I mean, I just went on my own little journey and figured like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to prove to you what happened to me as a little girl. And it was not an easy journey. I had to go find my way. First, I started here in Ashwigan and, and 
I don't think I was believed at that time. I had one hour session here and I cried through the whole thing and nobody ever got back to me. They said they would give me more counseling. So I was really frustrated and angry with that. And then I just moved on. I went to Toronto. I went to the, I actually went to the Ontario Hypnosis Center on my own. And that was probably one of the best moves I ever made because I'm one of these people who just go, go, go. I don't want to look back. I don't want, you know, you just keep going. It's like you're running and running and running away from something. And that's the way it was with me. Never look back because then I'd have to deal with stuff, right? And so through the hypnosis thing, it's not like what people think. All I, What I got from that really helped me, and I can use it today. It helped me to relax, to to look back. And that was the most important because then when I could look back, I could actually confront what happened to me and you know, and then I moved on and then I came down here to Kanopushra in Ashwigan here and I got more more counseling, quite a bit of counseling. And I really I really found that helpful, too. So it really did help on that journey to healing, you know, and the, and the wellness. So I felt a lot better once that I can once I could confront um, uh, those things in your mind about Zimmerman and what he'd done to me as a little girl. Um, then it was easier moving forward. The memories are never easy, but at least you can move out of that space where there's all that hurt that you're suppressing, right? So just, just being able to relax. So that was really something because I'm like a go, 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 go. You know, I became a, I became a compulsive, like a compulsive reader anytime I had to face anything or in, in any spare time. And that's probably one of the things that I neglected with my kids is I didn't spend enough good quality time with them because in my mind I just had this urge and this need to read 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 and so I would read anything everything every day I'd have to read something my kids would ask me something I'd say go away I'm reading something you know that kind of stuff so they did get the brunt of some of it and and that's just where I was and now to this day I don't have to read I don't pick up books I don't I haven't read anything really like a book in a long time I try I just don't need to do it well, I'm glad you found your healing journey, Roberta, and I want to thank you very much for chatting with us today. Certainly. So appreciative for Roberta to come in and, and um, share her memories. And I'm constantly trying to encourage Canadians. There is a Mi'kmaq woman who was put in the residential school at Shubenacadie as a child. When she came out, she raised, I think Isabel raised six kids. Isabel Knockwood was her name. She went to university late in life after her kids moved out and she wrote a paper at university that ended up being turned into a book. And that book is called out of the depths. And in that book, she talked to a number of her classmates from residential school and also recounted her own memories. And for me, when I read Isabel Knockwood's book out of the depths, that was my first time hearing a first time account when she talked about the girls getting their first period and being told that they were bleeding because they were sinful, dirty Indians, not being explained that that's part of being a woman. She talked about being separated from her brothers because girls and boys could never have contact with one another. Um, she, you know, it was just an incredible account. And I, when those bodies became unearthed, I went online and I said, Canada, if you really want to know, if you really care, you will go and buy Isabel Knockwood's book. She passed away here about a year and a half ago. But if you really want to know, that's the book that will tell you. I was floored when, you know, Roberta, through her journey, started talking about, you know, having to speak to a lawyer and, and trying to, you know, 
deal with what she went through and then being told like we don't believe you that's i mean where do you turn when very real things like that happen to you and then that's what you're told by people who are supposed to help you well even when it came to compensation survivors had to choose a trauma so like if you spent 11 12 years at the residential school you couldn't say all the things that happened to you they 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 needed you to choose a trauma to be assessed to see what your compensation may or may not be. So the whole thing has, you know, start to finish, has been adding insult on top of injury. We heard some powerful stories and we have lots more conversation ahead. Coming up, we'll hear from the children and grandchildren of residential school survivors and the impacts of intergenerational trauma. Author David Robertson grew up away from his indigenous culture and learned that he was half Cree only when in junior high. Now, as an adult, David's been on his own journey of reclamation to find out more about his indigeneity from his resilient grandmother, who was a residential school survivor, to his dad's experience at day school, where he was banned from speaking Cree. But first, we want to bring in Janet Head from Apaskiwak Cree Nation. Janet learned her mom was a residential school survivor when she was in her 30s. Janet joins us to share what it was like to be parented by residential school survivors. Both Janet and David are joining us from Manitoba. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Janet, um, just to start with you, uh, first got to tell you, we heard your sister's song, um, 500 Years at the Top of the Episode. Yes. Very, very powerful. Beautiful song, yes. Yeah, Your sister wrote that song with your late mother, and you only really learned about the experience in residential schools when you were in your 30s, when your mom yes. actually mentioned to you that she went to residential school. That's a very long time we never knew. We never knew. Um, it just came up. I don't even know how it came up. It was in the 90s. She was having flashbacks and she come, she come up to me and my sisters and said, this, this is happening and, and uh, this, this is what happened to us in residential school. And we said, what, mom, this happened to you? And uh, both our, my, my sister Annette, she's younger than me, said, you need to go to the RCMP and report this. And she did. But then it just stayed there, and she 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 was still getting flashbacks, and then and then she went. I was working for Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs that time, and we were having a um, assembly, and I told her to go to go and present her her story and share with the Manitoba Chiefs. There was so much happening that time because she was also um, an ordained priest. Uh, Anglican priest. She's got her her uh, Masters of Divinity, so um, she was getting um, negative support from the church, and she was trying to share her story. And they were kept telling her to get over it. And she finally made a plan to go to the Brandon Synod with her with her group of students. She had students that she was teaching um, ministry. And they all said that they would support her. So she went to that synod, and uh, the synod had priests from, and bishops and archbishops from across Canada meeting there. I'm not sure what the meeting was about, but she was determined to share her her experience there. And when she was there, she said her her perpetrator was there, and she started to share her story. And the bishop told her to shut up and sit down. And the experiences that she shared with you were shocking enough for you to tell her that she needed to go talk to the authorities. I mean, these are, what can you tell us what some of those experiences were? She was uh, sexually abused by one of the priests. She was, um, 
She was a slave for the uh, the school. Her her duties was to um, was to to sew and uh, to do dishes. And um, she mentioned that there was uh, people there, or her friends from Opaska Cree Nation, and they had made a plan to run away because the uh, it was so horrible there. The the conditions they didn't they didn't want to stay there anymore. And they were only like eight, nine, eight, nine years old. And there was a group of them, I think five. So they planned to, to run away. And um, when they went out of the, the schoolyard, this was in Prince Albert, they came across a playground. And of course, their children, right? Freedom. They went and played. And of course, they got caught. And when they got caught, they were sent back to the school and they were talking amongst each other not to cry. And uh, they're all speaking in Cree, of course. And they said, we need to we need to not cry if we get punished. And uh, one of their guests, one of their um, their um, friends, uh, he was the first in line. And they, you know, they, they used humor to to. Um, overcome some of the traumas that they experienced in there and they laughed about this story and I heard the story many times from my mom and her other her other uh, colleagues and uh, they said that the person that went in there he, he was just crying the loudest of all the the children and they laughed about it but meanwhile you know I can't even ima- imagine Oh yeah, that's that's uh, that's a pretty <laughs> dramatic moment that they've mm-hmm. they're learning to laugh about um Wow. I just want to share the other other story of how my mom came to be at the uh, residential school. She was kidnapped off the streets. She was playing with her friends on the street on our community, community Opasquiat Cree Nation, and they were all taught to, to run if they seen a, a uh, car come into the community because there weren't very many people who had vehicles at that time. And they seen this vehicle, and my mom didn't run fast enough and her wow. friends watched her get kidnapped. They threw, they put her in the car, and they didn't even go ask my grand, grandparents they were going to take her. They took her and rounded a bunch of other children, and they took her to the train station into a boxcar with no windows, no bathroom facilities, no food, and they didn't know, not know where they were going. And it was a, that boxcar was full of children. Around so, what age was your mom at this time? She was seven at that time, and there were younger children that were in that in that box car and and uh, I ended up uh, being a support for one of those children and he told me that he said I always remember your mom she said your mom's the one that took care of me she took care of the little ones that were in that in that box car crying he said I was one of those children he said I was all forever thankful that your mom was there and you know she couldn't even she couldn't even uh, be scared because she ended up going into into a mother mode and and looking after these small children to make sure they were okay. Generations of trauma. Yes. So that was her first. And then when she got there, her hair was cut. And one of the reasons why I have long hair, like me and my sister, Annette, her hair's down, almost down to her ankles. Mine is almost down to my knees. And I I I grow my hair for her because she never ever could could grow her hair after they cut her hair because they put DDT on her scalp and it and it and it caused scabs and itchiness in her scalp and she could never ever grow her hair so whenever I would travel with her or be with her in her 
in her ministry meeting, she had proudly introduced me as my daughter, Janet, and my hair was as long as hers, he said, before I went to residential school. You know, something you hear people do when you talk about residential schools and the indigenous experience, you hear people diminish it as something that happened back then, happened so long ago, and that it's not, um, uh, it feels like it's, they say it's not worth talking about now. So I want you to go into, as the child of a person who went to residential school, how does it affect you today? They can't say that we we get we should get over it because it's still happening. We're still living it. When you see the people on the streets who are homeless, that's part of the intergenerational residential school impacts. I was impacted in a big way. All my siblings were because our parents didn't know how to parent. We had front row seats, so you can ask any children child across Canada what they witnessed, and they'll tell you that our parents were drinking and that's how they coped. They, they didn't hug us. They didn't tell us they loved us because they didn't know how. We taught them. And I always say we were born to help our, our, help our parents heal. We were born to, to keep telling our parents' story. We are their voices. Their story will never die because we're here. And for us, growing up in Opaskwak Cree Nation, there was over 350 children that were taken away to residential school. And all those children came back, not at, at the same time, but at different times, all traumatized, hurt. And we seen it in the community. The whole community was drinking. We seen a lot of violence. And it became normal, became normal. And you've talked about now in your life being drug and alcohol free, so that that's really important to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Why, why so important for you to, to be substance free? Because I seen it, I felt like I partied throughout my childhood from mm. when I can remember two years old till till whenever till till seventeen they just they finally did uh start to slow down in their drinking when I was seventeen that would be seventy seven so for me, I felt like I partied with them, and i I seen what it did to my parents my my uh aunts and uncles and other people in the community. And I thought, I don't want to be like that. I don't know. I don't like what it does because you see in the violence after a while, they'd be having fun and then they'd be crying and, and then fighting. And, and that's all how, that's how they coped with residential school um, pains and traumas. And, and we seen that. And I said to myself, and then also growing up beside a racist community, calling us mm-hmm. lazy and no good. And, and this is what they heard also in residential school, right? Always negative. You're no good. You're, you're, you're a savage. You'll be, you'll never become anything. And, you know, all those negative things that they, they told our parents, they, the, the town of the paw was doing that as, as well. And for me, I said, no, I'm not going to ever drink. They cannot say that every first nation are alcoholics and drug addicts because I can say no, I'm I'm alcohol free and I'm drug free, and I'm proud to say that now. Have you talked with your mom about, you know, um, never being hugged? My mom has passed on to the spirit world, October 10, 2010. But we did. We had that conversation. I took her out for supper, and I said, "Mom, I said you are not a good mom." <laughs> And that's how our conversation started. And you know what? She really believed that she was. She did t- make sure that we were, we were clean and we were fed, and we were probably the cleanest kids on the, on our block because because she made sure we were we were clean and our hair was perfect. 
braided and um, our clothes were clean. We always had nice clothes. And, but the, the part that was missing was the emotional, the emotional part and, and the, um, the hugging and uh, being told that you were, you were going to be a successful adult in your life, right? All that encouragement and supports. We never got those because they didn't know how. And, and um, when I told my mom, I said, you weren't a good parent, mom. And, and she looked at me like shocked. I said, um, you never, you never hugged us. I said, I never told us you loved us. I said, and, um, and then it just went from there. We had a really good conversation and, and still though, I, there was still a lot of un, unspoken, um, words between us because when she passed away, I had more questions that needed to be answered. And, and, um, I just feel for the residential school survivors, they should have got the, um, the therapy as soon as they came out of that school. But of course, Canada hid that, right? And they were on their own. So my parents, my grandparents were, were also went to residential school, but um, they never, we never heard nothing, nothing. I didn't even know my grandparents went to residential school. I read it in one of the, uh, the books that they had, um, um, I don't know what you call it. They went to Mackay Residential School in Fisher Island. The records, that's where I seen their name. And we never knew. We never knew they went. All we heard from my grandparents was never trust the white, white, white man because they'll do this. But what he meant was never trust authority. Back to your grandparents, it's like the, the generations of trauma and just something as simple as a hug, which we now know like clinically is so necessary for the development of a kid, like generations and thousands of kids not getting this is is mind boggling. So important because yeah. when my, when I had my daughter, that's when I was getting triggers because I was hugging my daughter. Well, of course as a baby, but right through toddler and right till to the, to this day, I hug her and, and I tell her I love her every day, sometimes three or four times a day. I tell her I love her. And that what didn't happen to us. And, and then when she was a toddler and I was doing this and I was hugging her, you know, and just giving her all this love. And then it, it dawned on me. I didn't get this. I didn't get this at her age. Your therapy journey, I'm assuming, was pretty um, tough as well. I it mean, was. On different levels, right? It was. And I went to therapy because I broke I was in a breakup and I needed that that uh, help to overcome that um, that relationship because it was, a, of course, a dysfunctional relationship. And little did I know it had to do with my intergenerational stuff to intergenerational couples. And it's right across Canada is not good at all. It's not not we did not make it past six years. So that's why I went. And then again, um, I went for therapy because I was going through some other stuff. But you know what? The therapist that we went, that I went to see, did not even touch on intergenerational or residential school. They never, they didn't even put two and two together until after my mom passed away. Two thousand ten is when I, I went to see because I thought I was well. I thought I was well. Oh, I'm, I'm good. I've seen a therapist. Blah 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 blah. And then I went to when my mom passed away. It was no. I didn't even touch anything on on residential school stuff that happened in our family. 
And it was only then that I that it clicked when our therapist, who was First Nation, said, "You, you're going through intergenerational impacts. You were impacted by residential school." This is a second therapist. The, the before this the was probably like the fourth therapist. Wow! Wow! <laughs> I wow. So, you, so and, and this was the first one that was an Indigenous therapist. Yes, right? yes, and that's who woke me up and said, "Do you know your language?" I said, "No." Do you do you know your culture? I said, "I'm starting to learn it now." So kind of. Do you go to ceremonies? Yes, ceremonies is very important in my life. He said, then you were impacted by residential school. And it was such a shock to me to find out I was, I was colonized. And I was just, I cried. I cried because I thought I was a first, first uh, nation, Cree, proud Indian woman, right? And I cried when I found out I was colonized because I didn't have my language. Although I understand it 100%. Um, I cannot have a, a conversation with my aunt, who is a fluent Cree speaker. Um, we just got by, you know, talking to our grandparents. And, their, and my mom and dad were fluent Cree speakers, so they got their language back after they came from from residential school because it was a 100% Cree speaking community. So they could, they could um, get their language back. Well, I'm so glad that you finally, you know, got some appropriate help and, and help from someone from your community, which is so important. It's so, so important. So Janet, thank you so much for sharing um, all of these stories and experiences with us. Uh, We really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Can I just add a few, uh, some words for the rest of Canada that's listening and all those intergenerational survivors or who are listening, go, go to therapy, go talk to an elder, um, Learn about your past. It's so important to know your your history and where your parent, what your parent, where your parents, um, if they went to residential residential school and your grandparents, and it'll it'll open up your eyes and it'll you will say, now I understand why my parents were the way they were. Now I understand why my grandparents were the way they were. And um, you know, I forgave my parents. I they were the best parents ever. If I were to choose choose parents again, it would be my my mom and dad they were the best role models ever because of them my my family is so um strong because of that thank you so much thank you so much for sharing thank you jamar and janet thank you so much and i want to pick up uh jamar off of something that janet just said about knowing your history uh and i want to introduce everybody to david robertson david you grew up in winnipeg you grew up in a very white neighborhood and you grew up not knowing you were cree do you can you share that story about when you found out? Yeah, um, I grew up in a upper middle class neighborhood here in Winnipeg, and there was really no avenue for me to learn about my indigeneity um, back then. For for several reasons, my dad and my my mom uh, didn't expose me to that part of my heritage. Part of it was because it wasn't something that they recognized as being um, important to my development. Um, and I think a lot of it too had to do with some of the experiences that have been passed down in my dad's side of the family. Um, but there's also like, um, very little information anywhere else, you know, in school, we didn't learn anything about indigenous people ever. Um, unless it was some sort of connection to the fur trade maybe. Um, and then even in literature, there was there were no books, um, at least not widely available, that talked to, talked about indigenous people or that had had indigenous heroes or 
um, had any sort of history in it. So, you know, I, I um, grew up, yeah, I grew up with, without any knowledge. And, you know, even when I was picked on or, you know, I had kids calling me burnt toast because of the color of my skin, I, I didn't understand why, because I, um, I knew that I was different, but I didn't know why I was different or, you know, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't, there was no connection to that and being Indigenous. And it wasn't until I was in middle years that I realized that I was Indigenous. And I don't even know how that kind of revelation um, happened. But um, so, and then knowing it um, really just made me resent it because everything I learned about being Indigenous, everything I learned about Indigenous people had always been so negative that I really wanted no part of it um, because there was so much hate and so much, so much discrimination and so much racism that I just, I hid from it as much, as long as I could. Um, I didn't want anybody to know. And I was able to hide from it because I didn't look or sound stereotypically uh, indigenous. So, um, you know, there's this expectation that if I was indigenous, I maybe would have, would have been speaking a certain way or, you know, wearing, you know, a, a braids or a headband or, you know, whatever Hollywood presentation of Indigenous people would have been back then. So I was able to hide from it. And it wasn't until high school that I really started to learn about my Indigeneity from my father because um, my mother and my father were separated for several years and got back together when I was in high school. And uh, my dad at that point and I decided that we were going to work at our relationship and he was going to teach me stuff that I had never known before. And that was when I became aware, really aware and, and be, began to develop some sort of pride in my ind Indigenous heritage. And, you know, now today, because of those stories and because of that healing journey of learning and uh, my identity through those stories, um, I'm very proud to be, to be Cree. And, um, but it's been a, you know, 30 or more year journey. David, in the beginning of that journey, when you were reconnecting with your dad and he was explaining your background, how how did your father explain the decisions he made that you and your mom made about about raising raising you, raising your brothers to not know of your Cree heritage? Well, it wasn't you know it wasn't explicitly that he they kept it from us. It was just that they, it was never a um, a, a, a focus. Um, one of the things I asked my dad in the last couple of years. Uh, before he passed away was that, um, you know, why didn't you teach me about being Cree? You know, I, I think I would have been better off if I had learned a little bit about that when I was a kid. And his answer to me was that he wanted me to find my own way. He wanted me to figure out what Cree meant for me. He didn't want to impose that on me. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I kind of have... I kind of understood that. Um, and one of the things that he, he really, he said to me that really st stuck out was that, you know, he asked me a question back and he said, how, how am I going to teach you how to be Cree? You are Cree. And so, you know, nothing I can say or do will make you more or less Cree. It's the journey that we go on, that we go on, like our life journey is to develop a sense of what that, Cree identity means to you because what it means to me might be different than what it means to someone else who's Cree. Um, so in a lot of ways, I kind of understand in a little bit about what my parents, uh, their choices that they made in, in raising us. And I was raised very well. Um, but, 
you know, I think that in hindsight, I probably would have done things a little differently. And I certainly am doing things a little differently with my own children. Um, because I think some exposure would have been helpful. You know, I would, I, you know, I, I started off late, you know, I could have gotten an earlier start, I guess. David, you've said how intergenerational trauma requires intergenerational healing. You brought up your children. I want to ask you if you can share the story of the time when your daughter asked your dad to teach her Cree. Yeah, it was, that's when I really understood, you know, um, how things are passed down and how healing happens. Um, you know, because my, my grandmother uh, went to Norway House Indian Residential School and my dad went to a day school. And at that day school, it was very similar to a residential school because he wasn't allowed to speak his language anywhere on the grounds of the school, certainly not in the classroom. And him and his friends used to sneak off into the bush to speak Cree to each other, but that really wasn't even enough. And when my dad went away to... Um, Cook Christian Training School down in Phoenix. Um, he wasn't able to speak his language at any point because no one spoke Cree. And so, what happened over the course of you know from his childhood and onward uh, was a devaluation of Cree language. Um, as much as he still hung on to that language, um, and so when my brothers and I were born, it just wasn't something that um, he felt was important for us to know. In fact, he thought that we would be it would be detrimental for us to learn our language. Uh, something that he was the only really regret that he had was that he didn't teach us. Um, so there we were, my, my daughter and I, and my, all my kids, and um, my, my picture book came out, which is uh, called When We Were Alone. And it's a book about residential schools for young learners. And uh, the first person I read it to was, was my daughter, Lauren, who at the time was, I think about six years old. So we read it together and there's a Cree language in there. And, and one of the sections talks about how language was taken away and language was reclaimed. Um, and so after I read it to her, she was very quiet. And we, uh, my dad was coming over with my mother the, uh, the next day, I believe, because we were having some sort of a, a brunch. And as soon as my, um, my dad came over, I sat down on his chair here in, in our living room. My daughter ran over to him and uh, jumped into his lap and asked him to speak, teach Cree to her. And it was this really transformative moment because I never, we never had a chat about it. But I think my, my daughter, through story, recognized she made connections. She, she recognized that her grandfather spoke Cree, but her dad didn't speak Cree and she didn't speak Cree. And so she thought, you know, I'm going to break that cycle and I'm going to learn Cree. And so before my dad's passing, my daughter and my, fa my father were uh, learning Cree. Uh, my dad was learning Cree, uh, uh, teaching Cree to her. And, um, and I have videos of them, which I'll always cherish, uh, of them going through a lesson together. But, um, you know, I, I was sitting there and I'm watching the lesson. And I was watching this exchange happen with Lauren and my dad. And I just thought, that's like, that's what healing looks like. You know, that's how we... This is one of the ways that we climb out of that trauma is to find ways that we can revitalize and reclaim culture and language. And um, I just certainly saw that in a very intimate way in my own family. Oh, that is a beautiful story. I, I can picture you told it so well. I can picture and what's amazing is a language that was taken from your dad and denied to your dad is then taught to your daughter who will then speak it into the future. And that's where the healing moves forward. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Um. 
David, about yourself, you talk very openly about living with anxiety and and what calms you and brings you peace. And you've described being around your dad, but also being out on Blackwater, which is a spot on the lake near the trap line where your father grew up. What's it like to connect with the land that meant so much to your dad? It's this indescribable feeling of of connection, of being home. Um, it's like it's this it's this feeling that stretches back to ancestral experience. Um, when my dad asked me to take him out to his trap line, it was something that I think I've been waiting for for my whole life, and I didn't even really realize it. And um, you know, we we've been working to kind of heal for a long time. And it felt like when he asked me that, that was our destination. That was where we were going on our journey and um, physically and emotionally and spiritually. And and so we went out together onto the place where he grew up. That was where he, he he lived there since the age of maybe six months until he was about nine or 10 years old. And um, I remember just this feeling when we, well, the first thing I noticed was that we were on the, we were on the, uh, the boat heading out to Blackwater my dad at that time was failing. Uh, he was getting weaker and he looked like vibrant. He looked so much younger just being out on the water. And it's just like, I couldn't even explain. I had a picture of him that is just like, um, you know, I, I, you know, it's just the, my favorite picture that I have ever, ever seen um, because it just reminds me of like the strength and, and the beauty of the land that, and how it, that was given to my father on that day. And then when we pulled up to the land on Blackwater, um, as soon as I st- stepped foot on it, I just felt like I've come home. You know, I just felt like this is where I've, this is where I belong. And it's just the, you know, it's the experiences um, and the lives of those who came before you is, you know, just running through your veins. Um, you know, it's the same way, some same reason why Norway House feels so much like home to me, even though I've never lived there. It's, because my, my family through multiple generations have lived there. And, and that's something that is flowing through, you know, the very fabric of my being. And I understood that. And I think that's a part of, you know, what we're talking about is it's part of healing too. It's like, re- that's a part of this reconnection. It's, um, it's also just reconnecting with, with the waters and the land and it is calming. You know, it, um, I, ne- I didn't need my pills that day, you know, I was uh, I was on uh, anti-anxiety meds. I haven't for a while. I I didn't need to take them that day, and uh, it was just like I just felt so calm and at peace. And the next year, I I brought my my family out to the trap line. My dad couldn't make it, and my daughter, when we were leaving after the day, she kind of stopped me as we were walking to the boat, and uh, she took my hand and and she I crouched down beside her, and she said, "Dad, I feel so calm," and um. And I just like, I knew, you know, I knew that she was feeling the same thing that I had felt. And, and um, yeah, it was just a, just this beautiful moment and this beautiful place that uh, we had, we were really blessed to be able to uh, visit. And I was blessed to be able to be there with my dad. It turned out the last time I could have been there with him was, was the time we went together. So. David, I want to meet your daughter someday because she, the connection that she has and the connection that she brings for you and for the rest of your family and into the future is really powerful. Janet, I want to pick up on something just before we close here on something that you said in your interview with Jamar. And it in David's story with his daughter reminds me of what you said, which is we are their voices. And you talked about it's so such a powerful statement about you teaching your parent, you teaching your mom how to love and how to and how to hug 
and how to show affection. And I want to ask you, you as a mom, how did you parent? Way differently than my mom, way differently. Uh, like I told Jamar, there's not a day that I that I tell my girl that I love her. And when we see each other, it's always hugs and long hugs. And um, uh, she lives in OCN. I live here in Winnipeg. But we were constantly on Messenger. And throughout the day, she'll say, I love you, Mom. You're the best mom ever. And um, I'll message her like four times a day, three times a day. We'll be saying that to each other. David, we'll end with you. You are very active now in the movement towards reclamation. And how do you want your children to take this story forward? We're just doing the best that we can, my wife and I, to make sure that, you know, they have this um, knowledge of their culture, uh, their Métis and Cree. My, my wife is Métis, um, that they know the stories, that they know the history, um, and that they do something with it. I think that's true of what anybody needs to do whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, when you have that knowledge, when you've been gifted with that truth, it's not enough just to hold that truth. You need to be able, you need to do something with it. And I hope that our, our kids, and I hope that all kids, this is one of the reasons why I write for kids, is that they teach others. They teach others to make sure that, you know, we don't live in a country where nobody knows this history because we went through too much time like that. And, um, and one of the ama most amazing moments for me and proud moments as a dad was um, just recently this week, uh, this past week at the National Truth and Reconciliation Day, my daughter um, taught a class for an hour um, and she's just, you know, in grade five. She taught a grade two class, um, you know, all about the history and about Cree culture. And, um, and I didn't help her. You know, I, I just kind of helped her like with the wording, but um, she knew it all. And uh, that was that was when I thought, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna be okay. It might take a long time, but we're gonna be okay. Dan and David, I want to thank you both for joining us. Such an important conversation about intergenerational trauma and intergenerational healing. Thanks so much for you both. Thank you very much. I just wanted to put my arms around Janet um, as she was talking so bravely and so honestly about that experience, and it uh, it made me feel so incredibly emotional reflecting on my own family and, um, and my parents, you know, I'm in a very unique situation because my father and mother married when my father was in his haze of alcoholism and pain and suffering. And my six brothers and sisters were born in the middle of that. And then miraculously in his thirties, my father found his way to sobriety. He was 51 years sober when he died, but 10 years into his sobriety, when my siblings were grown, he approached my mother, they were in their mid to late 40s, and said, could we have one more baby? Because I just want to experience one time what it is to be a good father. And that's when I came along. So I was parented so differently than my siblings. And just listening to Janet there, that was a very emotional moment for me. What a burden for a child to have, right? To to be the the person that's going to teach their parent, or at least confront their parent about the way they were parented. I mean... It's, it's, it's a tremendous burden. And I, I think she, she took it on, I don't want to say gracefully, but uh, maybe courageously is the better word. You know, that's a tough thing to, I mean, I still have conversations I have to have with my mom about, you know, things that, that have happened in my life. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad she was able to have that conversation and make the pivot to, to healing. And, and I guess, you know, how is she going to move forward in her own um, parental journey? Correct. And uh, as a mom listening to her talk about how her own mom 
was so adamant about having her clothes nice and her her as a child be neat and be clean because these were the things that she maybe wouldn't have experienced in residential school. The the very active love of making sure her child is fed well. That is that's how she knows to show love because that's what she didn't receive. But then when Janet said her job as a child was to teach her mom affection, what an incredible amount of work for her to have have, have done as a child and then also to have shared with us. I just so appreciate her honesty today. Just incredible. And and now we're going to hear from someone who can talk to us a bit from, from the professional side of things about, you know, what we can do to start to heal uh, so many of these hurts. Um, coming up after the break, a friend of mine and really so well known across the country, um, Dr. James McCocus will be here to chat with us. In many ways, our next guest doesn't really need an introduction because everybody in Canada knows who he is now. But he is a Plains Creed Two-Spirit physician from Satellite Cree Nation. Dr. James McCocus has been on the front lines when it comes to highlighting some of the disparities in accessing care for Indigenous communities. We're so glad he's here to share some more insight into intergenerational trauma and healing. Welcome, Dr. James. Thanks so much, Candy. It's so nice to uh, be chatting with you again. Same here. Um, I always have wonderful memories of uh, you and your partner um, in your ceremony, kind of ducking down and standing up while deciding to get married. That's one of the best stories ever told, I think. (laughs) Um, For listeners today, we're talking about intergenerational trauma, and I'm not sure Canadians... You know, sometimes in our communities, we refer to it as blood memory or bone memory. And uh, I'm not sure Canadians fully understand it. Could you give an explanation of what we mean when we say intergenerational trauma? Yeah, well, it's a very heavy topic that, you know, every single Indigenous person in this country experiences on a daily basis. Um, And essentially, it is the trauma that is passed down from one generation to the next as a result of genocide that our people have experienced since, um, you know, the first contact with Christopher Columbus and, and subsequent explorers to Turtle Island. Um, and it's really the pain, the suffering, the tremendous amount of loss Um, And everything else that goes along with the longest running genocide in the world, which is the genocide of uh, people of Turtle Islands, of uh, the original people of Turtle Island here. Um, So I guess that's kind of a a succinct (laughs) uh, definition, but we can definitely um, dive further into it. So we got a lot of firsthand stories from residential school survivors and uh, their children earlier the episode. In your practice, are you seeing any running themes in um, running themes in your daily practice with indigenous communities and, and intergenerational um, traumas? So colonization and the impacts of colonization, which would include intergenerational trauma, is literally the effect of every single thing that I see in my practice working with um, Nahiawak, you know, Cree people. You know, of course, there's like ear infections and, 
you know, um, bladder infections and things like that, which are normal physiological things that happen to people. But for the most part, if we think about, um, you know, the complex post-traumatic stress that manifests in anxiety or insomnia or depression or, you know, um, depression-induced psychosis or hypervigilance or, you know, a lot of the personality, uh, I guess, disorders that are labeled as personality disorders, um, the addictions, the loss of life at such an early age, you know, the average life or, you know, the life expectancy for a male in my reserve is in the 50s. Um, And so when you think about all of those things together, um, all of those relate to intergenerational trauma that is so widespread amongst all of our peoples in the communities. And, you know, some of us are able to uh, cope and we've, you know, developed ways to address that and stop that cycle. And, you know, a lot of our people have not had the opportunity to do that uh, for various reasons within their own life, because it's, it can be a constant cycle of, uh, of pain, suffering, and violence. Doctor, you're a big believer in bringing together Indigenous and Western medical practices in your approach to healing. I, I find that really interesting. Can you take us through the importance of combining both? Sure. So we have to remember that Aisinuak, so original human beings of Turtle Island, before European colonization, had our own medical system, our own methods of healing, our own medicine people, our own medicines, and our own healthcare system. And with that system fully intact, our people would routinely live to more than a hundred years old without, you know, the imposition or assistance of Western medicine. So if you just appreciate that, you know, at 1492, if we, you know, consider that when um, Christopher Columbus arrived here, that our people were already living longer than the average life expectancy in 2021. And that we're living to be an age probably of one of the oldest nations in the world. At that time in Europe, you know, people didn't live that long into their 40s and 50s would be considered old. And so with that system, you know, a fully intact child rearing system um, where children were nurtured to, uh, be their full expression and, and best self and, and their gifts were nurtured by elders, the kind, humble ones is what we call elders in our language. And everybody had a place within our nation and we're celebrated for that. So as, uh, you know, hunters, protectors, gatherers, enforcers, medicine people, um, any number of things that help to contribute to the protection of our people that we must restore if we talk about indigenous health and we talk about intergenerational trauma the solution lies in restoring that system as much as we can because it's been systematically dismantled since the beginning of colonization with colonial violence 
and with laws that have been imposed by colonial governments like Canada and the American governments um, that are elected governments by you know people of this of this country who may or may not have known what was happening and we understand that now when people say that they didn't know what was happening in the Indian residential schools you know that was largely kept out of the consciousness of the country but we can't unknow that now and now that we do know that what is the responsibility that we all have to ensuring our relationships as treaty partners because when we think about what our relationship is supposed to be here on Turtle Island, it's supposed to be one of peace and friendship. And that is the spirit that we agreed to treaty. And when you alluded to the fact that, you know, Western and medical system, uh, Western and Indigenous medical systems in parallel, that's embodied by our treaty agreement of the two-row wampum, which was agreed to by the Haudenosaunee people, and then later reaffirmed at the Treaty of Niagara by over 2,000 chiefs of nations um, at that time. And if you think about that, it's really a European boat and uh, indigenous birch bark canoe traveling side by side down the river of life. And within those vessels, there's everything that is required to have a healthy society, including uh, medical systems. And so one isn't better, one isn't greater than the other, but we need both as indigenous people to get better and access to our own medicines, our own healing ways, our elders that can help us to get better. Um, Dr. J, I'm so glad you brought up the Peace and Friendship Treaties, because as we're recording this, we're just three days past Treaty Day in Mi'kma'ki, where I'm from, um, which we celebrate every year. We come together with the government. We reaffirm our wish to live together in peace and friendship. But every year when we do that, we can't help but think about the fact that colonization has had such an impact on our canoe in a way that it has not had an impact on their boat. And, um, you know, when I think about even you and I as two spirited people, like what our place was in society, pre-contact to uh, post-colonial situations. And it seems to me that healthcare and not just healthcare, but specifically mental healthcare you know, the medicine wheel cared for that pre-colonization, but can you talk a little bit about the impact that colonization had on the concept of therapy and mental health? Mental health issues are, are you know, a very challenging thing to deal with in our communities and in our families. With mental health issues, we don't see the physical um, effects of that on someone's body, but it comes out in all sorts of ways. And you know, the fact that we have so much, um, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, addictions, or complex post-traumatic stress disorders uh, in our communities, um, we can really look and see how devastating that colonization has been and how violent it has been for successive generations. Now we're these things are being passed down from one generation to the next to the next. And that's really the legacy of intergenerational trauma, where it becomes normalized to see destructive behaviors within a family and within a family unit. And, you know, an example of that might be um, 
codependencies or, um, you know, allowing somebody to get away with behaviors that are not acceptable and would not be tolerable because they impact upon the health of other people. And when someone is breaking intergenerational trauma, you know, by putting up healthy boundaries, for example, by saying, I'm, I'm not going to allow you to treat me this way anymore. I'm not going to allow you to take advantage of me anymore. I'm not going, you know, it doesn't feel good when I'm around you. Then what sometimes happens in a community that is saturated in mental health issues and dysfunctional behavior is then the group thought around that is, well, that person thinks they're better than us. That person, you know, um, they've lived so much in the Western society that they're not like us anymore. When in fact, the person is just putting healthy boundaries around themselves and it can actually isolate and alienate you as an individual from your community. And I think that's one of the things that um, as people are confronting intergenerational trauma, it's a challenge because it can sometimes mean that we have to be away from you know, our families and communities to figure out like, what the heck is going on here? Like, why do I feel this way? What are these things that I don't feel good about that are continuously happening? And when I'm outside of that bubble, I don't feel that anymore. And, um, you know, sometimes this can even uh, manifest and creep into our most sacred spaces, which is our ceremonial spaces which are supposed to be an area that we've, uh, we are rejuvenated and our spirit comes alive and all four parts of the, our quadrant, you know, our mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual become balanced again. And as two-spirit people, Candy, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that we experience sometimes when we go into ceremonies that have been impacted that have been allowed to be impacted by colonization if we think about you know rigid bind uh, gender binaries or um sometimes we hear you know some elders say well you can't you know it um you know two-spirit people aren't welcome here because that's never a part of who we are and, and that was you know brought over with the with colonization like things like that um, which we know are not true and you know, I think one of the beautiful things of being a two-spirit person is we get to challenge those. And, you know, I call it like dusting off the cobwebs of colonization, like these things that have like been allowed to like linger in our sacred spaces that we've taken on as our own beliefs, but they're not, <laughs> you know, they're relics of Christianity they're relics of colonization and they're not ours because they're not accepting, loving, and inclusive. And if we remember those three things, that is, you know, you feel good when you go into an accepting, loving, inclusive, and kind space. And when you find that, you found the essence of what our healing is about and that everybody is welcome. And that everybody is there to ensure your well-being and everybody's well-being. I love how you laid that out and that you talked about 
the effect of colonization because I, you know, me as a lawyer, you as a doctor, I don't know if when you were a little kid, you got this, but where some of the kids from the res would call you an apple because you're, because of your attention to schoolwork that somehow um, academic excellence was a white trait and not an indigenous trait, which used to infuriate mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. because of <laughs> course, for us to have survived all these crazy policy and legislation, of course, we're a people of excellence. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Dr. McCocus, um, the the phrase legacy of residential school is often this sort of phrase that glosses over so many issues. And as you said, things that you see in your office all the time, and whether it's a physical manifestation or something people are dealing with, it's something that Indigenous, every Indigenous person, as you've laid out for us, is dealing with. So for those who are looking to better take care of mental health, how would you recommend breaking that cycle of intergenerational trauma? So this is a really, you know, if we could solve this in our lifetime, we would be so far ahead because, you know, residential schools have lasted for 160 years or more of constant violence, you know, and it's really important for people to understand how violent they were. And it, and it's, you know, it's hard to convey this to people without giving like specific concrete examples because, um, you know, I think a lot of times Canadians think that, oh, it's kind of like a, a boarding school. Like, you know, it's like Ridley College or Upper Canada College where it's a private school and we send people to go to. And, you know, it's they're away from their family, but they're getting a very good education. Like that could be further from the truth. So if you just imagine like um, and, and this it's really important to af- reflect on our, our two row wampum agreement. Um, because there's so many violations of our treaty that allowed for these schools to flourish, starting with um, understanding that the architect of them is the first prime minister of this country. So when you say that Canada is a country of a peacekeeping nation and all of these things, the architect of one of the longest genocidal experiments in the world is the first prime minister of this country and successive generations of elected parliamentarians that ensured that these schools continued. Now, the word for uh, learning in um, the Cree language is, um, or or the word for a teaching lodge, which is our own Indian school, if you want to call it that, is which is a teaching lodge. It translates into that, the place where you go to learn, but it's a lodge. The word for school as it has evolved in the Cree language, um, which really refers to residential schools, is kiskenwahamahtogamik. Mahto in Cree is to cry. So it's a place where you go to learn and cry is essentially what it means, which is a residential school. Now, imagine yourself as that young child, as young as four, being, um, you know, taken like ripped away from your parents um, from up till 17 or 18 um, by the RCMP. Um, and if the parents didn't allow their child to go, they would be in prison. So then who would look after the other children at home for successive generations? You know, I think about my grandfather, Vernon, who 
was about six when he ran away from the um, St. Albert Residential School. And St. Albert is about two hours drive from our reserve in Saddle Lake. And he tried multiple times to run away because he was being treated so bad. And then finally, two other older boys um, helped him walk home over the course of three days as a little six-year-old. And he'd have to, uh, you know, um, use his... uh, use his little slingshot to kill uh, prairie chickens. And I like I remember myself at six getting lost in the Kingsway Garden Mall in Edmonton. And like, you know, I went down an escalator in Sears and my mom didn't come and and I was freaking out because like there's so many people around and like where's my mom? And and imagine being him walking two hundred kilometers as a six year old in the bush and surviving, like just the amount of sheer will to survive that he had to do that to escape the place where, you know, people, you know, children were being violated um, of all sorts of awful, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. You know, um, my other grandfather was a young child and, uh, and remembers digging graves there was the little boys and the big boys and the little boys had to go into the grave to dig them and the big boys would pull them out or another one, you know, my grandfather and I, and and this is triggering, but like, you know, um, the priest smashed their head, you know, he saw him smash another little child's head um, and then throw him down a stairs and he died or, you know, the incinerators were children were, burned in there so if we think about all of the things of the holocaust which everyone is familiar with the holocaust which happened over a few years you know during the course of world war ii which is awful 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 part of human history that these things happened here for 160 years and on top of that while all this was happening there was further laws that prevented our movement, you know, the past system, which existed for 61 years. Scalping laws, you know, candies from uh, Mi'kmaq, they still have those scalping laws in Nova Scotia. The eradication of the buffalo, which, you know, is our main livelihood. Like imagine if they just, farmers weren't allowed to farm anymore. (laughs) Like what would happen? There'd be, you know, everyone would go crazy. Um, and all of these things that just one thing after the other, and it's a violation of who we are. And it's no wonder that we're still here surviving, but that we have suffered a lot of the PTSD effects from that, you know, and that's just in my family. If you look at every single Indigenous person, they all have stories like that. And the fact that we can still laugh and, you know, be present in a way that is not completely in a vegetative state is an incredible thing, you know? And and this really speaks to the tenacity and resilience that our people had to do to survive here. And what allowed us to do that, you know, is through our, our ceremonies and our healing. And even with that, you know, outline of those under the Indian Act, which people need to understand that 
that's like outlawing the Canadian judicial system. That's outlawing the Canadian, you know, police and RCMP. That's outlawing all the hospitals and doctors and nurses in this country. No schools, no banking industries, erasing everything for over a hundred years. Yeah, nothing. And that's what our people survive through. So when we think about the state of Indigenous nations in this country, in our country, um, where now we have less than 0.01% of the land that we never agreed to give up, then I hope people can understand conversations like land back, conversations as to why the Mi'kmaq fishers are protesting in asserting their right to feed their families because they existed long before the Atlantic fisheries. (laughs) They are the Atlantic fisheries. Um, And so, you know, there's, there's so many conversations that need to be unpacked. Then, you know, having one day in September 30th where people can appreciate for a very, very, very small piece, um, the, the true, as you said, legacy of residential schools. And, and, and to this generation, to my generation, you know, I'm my, my sister's generation is the first generation of non-fluent um, Cree speakers. And that is a, a lasting legacy um, that, you know, we have to, to, work extremely hard at maintaining our our language like and this is something that people don't understand is the the sheer pressure that it is to have the full weight of your entire society on your shoulders to ensure that we are not responsible for having it disappear completely and that really speaks to minority stress like every single day in covid i'm like is this going to be the final cause of our people to go extinct (laughs) you know and as a doctor i can't just go home at the end of the day and say okay i'm going to go relax with my family now like there's constantly something that we think about and and that is part of um, intergenerational trauma is ensuring you know is is that constant state of worry. I'm so glad that you brought language in because our former grand captain, may he rest in peace, Alec Denny, once told me um, that because I cannot fluently speak my language, there will always be a part of me that I don't know. And when I look at all those important pieces of paper and frames on my wall from the colonizer and how much respect they get, I, I always ask myself, what did I trade in order to get those pieces of paper? So there is a way out of intergenerational trauma. And that is immersing yourself in the beauty, the, um, the amazing, like, I just can only describe it, the amazing beauty that is our ceremonies and our culture and our ways of being. And I want to explain from a medical perspective why that's important. So, you know, it it is important for our people to access therapy 
um, and to go to, you know, psychiatrists and, and get medicines if they need it and go to treatment centers if they need that. But it's also imp- important for people to access our land, our ceremonial spaces and our sites of spiritual significance because it grounds us to who we are as a people. We are placed on this turtle with these teachings that are here. And when people go to a ceremony, one, first, they have to be willing to go by themselves. And this speaks to the importance in our teachings of free will. You can't make somebody do something. And so this is an elder will never make you do something. So you have to have the motivation and free will to get yourself to that healing space. The second thing is, when you go, you have to give your weaponasuna, your offering. So you have to put something together that you are willing to do to get better. And the third thing is you have to tell that elder or that ceremonial leader what it is that you're there to do or asking for, what help you're asking for. When you do that, You go into your emotional brain, which is your amygdala and hippocampus. Your amygdala is your emotional brain, where a lot of those traumatic memories are stored and buried deep down inside of your brain. And it allows you to get that out in a safe space where you're surrounded by people who love you and care about you and want the best of you, which can't really happen in an individual setting with a therapist. You have your whole nation there, your whole society, your whole family who wants you to get better and you feel that and you let that memory out into, you know, the cosmos that has been stuck and stored in your brain and walled off and perhaps you did different things to keep it safe there, like maybe addictions kept you safe or certain behaviors kept you safe, but it wasn't good for you and you get it out into this space where not only it's a loving space, a compassionate space, but it's a spiritual space and things happen that we don't know why they happen. And then it allows that memory to be replaced by a positive memory. And this speaks to the neuroplasticity of our brains to be able to form new neural connections. And this can only happen in a safe, loving ceremonial space where people are connected with who they are. And I've seen this so many times for people when they're working through their traumas. And this is why in the healthcare system, when you think about Indigenous people, it has to include elders, our own medicine people. It has to include our medicines. It has to include our ceremonial spaces and access to that. If we do not include those, any efforts that we do within the healthcare system will fail because they're not a full effort of realigning our canoe and the European boat. We're rebuilding our canoe, which is rotten, decayed. It's sunk at the bottom of that river while the European boat is essentially a modern cruise ship with all of the amenities, um, you know, of a cruise ship. So we're, we need to rebuild that canoe and we need that in the health system. We need all of our allies, our treaty partners, our brothers and sisters to ensure that that happens to its, um, fullest potential.
And then we will see intergenerational healing. Dr. James, I could talk to you all day long. You always make me feel fabulous. Um, but unfortunately, we have come to the end of this time together. But I just want to thank you for uh, not just joining us today and sharing all your incredible knowledge, but I want to thank you for all the great work that you do and all the healing that you do for our people everywhere. Thank you so much. Thank you. Every single time that I talk to her, I hear Dr. James talk. It lightens my heart. It uh, it it reinforces so many of the things that uh, that I'm thinking and talking about all the time. How did you two feel about that? Well, let me talk about what's so dope about about what he does as a doctor and as a person that practices culture. Um, he wraps it up very very um, tangibly because right now in Western society we have this you know way of saying okay, well, it's all about science and it's not about the culture or the spirit or any of that, right? It's like, it's separate. And then you have some people be like, oh, it's all about the spirit. It has nothing to do with the the science or the function of the brain or whatever. And he wraps it all up perfectly and shows how what you do culturally in your daily life, how it affects your brain and how it affects your development and why the two, from the standpoint of the indigenous experience, in order to heal, need to happen in tandem. Like, it, it, it was incredible for me to hear that. Um... Yeah, I, I just think it's so so powerful to hear that. I also love how Dr. Makokas, as a non-Indigenous person, how he uses language in, in everyday conversation. I think that's so important. And talk about like healing and moving forward. And, and all of our guests today talked about the importance of language, of hearing it, of speaking it, of moving it forward. I learned so much from Dr. Makokas. He does such a great job of applying all the context to what he's about to answer. Uh, you know, I could listen to him all day. Absolutely. We want to thank uh, thank you for taking the time to listen today and thank all of our guests for everything they gave us today. It was incredible information and, uh, and lessons that we learned today and also just lending their experiences to us. Now, folks, we want to remind you that this podcast is not a substitute for therapy and that if you need to please reach out to mental health professionals if you need help with your mental health uh, journey. For more information on that and what you heard on the show, head over to the podcast show notes or visit letstalk.bell.ca where you will find links to resources, helpline numbers, and much more. And remember, subscribe and share so you know when a new episode drops. That's it for today. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of From Where We Stand, Conversations on Race and Mental Health.